The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we are a blessed people. You've given us Christ, and as we just sang, you've given him to us that we may adore him. Look at him, see him, and adore him. A treasure, a blessing. Thank you. In him, you've given us life, given us communion with you. You've given us a present and a future. You've given us life. Your blessings are astonishing. They are, they are generous and full and never-ending. We'll never know the end of them, actually. You'll be spending eternity showing us more of your grace. Thank you. You make us a thankful and grateful people, and will you also make us more? Will you make us a people who behold and who adore, as we just sang? Towards that end, Lord, use this passage this morning to build us, to, to grow us, to change us, maybe, but to make us a people who are satisfied in you and from that gain honor for yourself. So teach this morning. Open our eyes. Help us to understand. Draw our attention to this passage and to yourself. We look to you for that and say thank you in advance. You're good. You're kind. We love you and trust you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. How do you respond to God's blessing? In some situation where he provides for you or protects you, comforts, maybe, maybe corrects and teaches you, a lot of times we don't see God's blessing. He, he blesses us far more than we actually realize. But, but in a moment, you see it, you understand it. God blessed me. How do you respond? Thanksgiving probably comes to mind. Gratefulness. Absolutely appropriate. Very good. We, we want to be, I just pray that we would be a thankful and grateful people. That, that would be a, a very good and appropriate response. But what else? In our passage today, King David will show us something more. Something that is in addition to thanksgiving and gratefulness. Not, not to replace it, but but more of on top of it and something that actually, as it's laid on top of Thanksgiving, actually deepens Thanksgiving. It deepens the blessing. It, it, it sweetens our experience of God's goodness to us, in fact. That's what we're going to see as we look at this morning's passage in 2 Samuel 7 and see David's response to the stunning blessing that God gave him, the Davidic covenant. Looked at this covenant two weeks ago in the first half of the chapter. God made a covenant that is a solemn promise of relationship. He made it with David to build him a house, a family line, a lineage of kings that would go on. The Lord promised David that he would take one from his family and he would set him on the throne over his people and he would treat him like a son, be to him a father. That's unique language of identification and nearness and, and partnership really and an empowering love that God promised to David that he would do this forever. 
Frequent emphasis in the passage. Establish your throne forever, your kingdom forever. A tremendous blessing to David, which as we saw, was actually a blessing that was for the people of God. A blessing for us. We have been blessed in the Davidic covenant. If David's great son, Jesus, is your king, then this is actually a covenant that's to David, to you. A great blessing. An establishing of us in security and peace and relationship with God under his sheltering wings. Now, and then especially one day as he brings the fullness of the kingdom. Heaven. We considered all that last time, and now today we consider the appropriate response to God in light of such a blessing. So let me read the passage. I'm going to begin in verse 17 to get the lead into it, but, but 18 and following is our focus. I'll read it and then pass back through it to make sure we understand the details of what's here, and then draw two observations from it. So this is 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 17. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name, doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Second Samuel 7. So after the Lord spoke to Nathan in verse 17, Nathan then delivered the message to David, and verses 18 to the end are David's response of prayer to the Lord. So what we're actually doing is we're, we're listening in on a man's private prayer. David went in 
and it says, sat before the Lord, probably in the tent that he had set up for the ark. This is not the, the tabernacle proper. Back in chapter six, it says that he set up a tent, just some other tent, put the ark there, and he went in, goes into the Lord's presence, and he sits down. That's noteworthy. Highly unusual. It's hard for us to, to kind of get a grasp of this. This is very personal because worship before the ark, this is the ark. And it was always standing. Stand in the presence of the ark. And David goes and he sits down. Right in God's living room. Casual almost. Intimate but not casual or intimate in the sense of disrespectful. You see how he addresses the Lord repeatedly in this passage, O Lord God. And that's typeset in a certain way in my Bible, probably in yours also, has lowercase Lord and uppercase God, because it's putting together a couple things there. This is a title that uses the title of God and the name of God. It's like saying Lord Yahweh or Master Yahweh. It is, it is incredibly respectful. He is addressing God with the utmost deference. He's calling him master and Lord and identifying the particular God he's talking to, not just one of the gods, but the Lord. And yet he's taken a seat in his living room. So casual. This is how you pray. Intimate reverence. Side by side. And what he prays is also remarkable. David's prayer has two halves to it. Verses 18 through 24 are full of statements, no requests. Statements that recount what the Lord has done for David, what he just promised him, and how he, this then makes David look at the Lord and makes David look at himself as well as all the people. He sees the actions and the promises past and present and future, all weaving together as the blessings fall on him and fall on the people of God. And he begins, who am I and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Set me on the throne of Israel. That's amazing. But it's actually a small thing in your eyes because you just promised me more, a house forever, instruction for mankind, he says. And that last phrase there in verse 19, it's, it's not a question, it's a statement, actually. And uses a word that's often translated as law. Instruction. Meaning this is guidance, this is direction, this is boundary setting for all of mankind. There's not just a message here for David or just a message here for the people of God. There's a message here for everybody saying there is a single people under a single great ruler that will be everlasting. The forever kingdom of God and there are no other kings and no other peoples and no other thrones that will stand and outlast David. This is a big claim to exclusivity. To exclusivity. Instruction for all the world to understand and respond to appropriately. And David understands it now and responds in humble, amazed adoration. And then in the second half, verses 25 to the end, he turns to make a request. So verse 24 ends with this great statement that we see throughout all the scriptures. 
but I will be their God, they will be my people. That statement's there and repeated constantly through the scriptures. And verse 25 then, and now, O Lord God, bring that about. Everything you promised, do it. That's the thrust of the final section. You've made this revelation to your servant, and so I boldly ask, do it, please. Bless the house of your servant, David, like you said you would. That's the only way it will stand and be blessed if you do it, so please do it. That's the prayerful response of David to God's blessing of him. From that, then, we can draw two observations. So here's the first. The immediate reaction when David first heard this, put it like this. Oh, Lord God, you are great. Oh, Lord God, you are great. He hears what Nathan says, and it's as if he responds, wow. (sighs) Unbelievable. Lord God, you are great. That phrase is actually in verse 22. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. A statement about stature and rank. He is magnificent and amazing, and he is supreme, all alone in wonderful splendor. You are great, for there is no God besides you. All alone you stand above us, the creation, and you reign from on high. That's what he's saying. This is the Holy One, unique and set apart. There's no other God like him. But look closely at what it is that he's great about. What highlights or or magnifies his unique transcendence. It's not just because he is powerful or mighty or wise. There's something in particular here, and it's both right before the statement about his greatness and right after it. So verse 21, before, you freely of your own desire and promise did all this greatness and inform me of it. Therefore, you're great. Then right after, verse 22, end of, end of the verse, you are great and unique, according to, or like is shown by all that you have told us. So, what he's saying, you Lord, you, Lord God, are great, uniquely so, because of all the free greatness, all the grace, all the grace that you have done to us and then told us about great things for David and for the people that are amazing and unique. All of grace. So we need to look at this and consider, and this is about you also, remember. You're the people of God. You are you're beneath David's son. So look at this and take in God's free greatness for you. Verses 22, 23, 24, he took a people, only one people. Who is like them on earth, he says? Nobody. Not because this people's anything, not, not because we are anything, we're nothing, but because, great thing, 
The Lord chose them again by grace. God chose to work through them to make for himself a name by doing great and awesome things for his people. He redeemed them out of slavery. Notice how he tells the story of God's redemption of his people. The, the quintessential Old Testament account of that is the deliverance out of bondage in Egypt. That is a type, a model of God's saving of all of his people, us included. And he tells that story, brings it up in, in real brief form here, you brought your people out of bondage in Egypt and drove out before them an enemy such that they could have a place of peace and you would be their God there and they would be your people there. That's the phrasing here repeated all through the scriptures finally fulfilled in Revelation 21. He tells the story of God's saving of his people. That's your story. It's about you. That's what David marvels at. He looks at and looks, looks back at that and looks around at it and looks ahead at the promises. God's personal blessing, all of his corporate blessing and all of his people all around, all of grace, all amazing, all thoroughly undeserved, all unheard of before. He is a great and amazing God of awesome condescending grace. That's why God's great. That's why your God is great. Notice this carefully. And put this together with the first half of the passage we talked about two weeks ago. We look at all those things that God has done for us, and there is a way to think about it properly and a way to mess it up. Have you heard the joke about the difference between a dog and a cat? A dog looks at you and thinks, he feeds me, he shelters me, he loves me, he must be God. A cat looks at you and thinks, he feeds me, he shelters me, he loves me, I must be God. A dog receives blessing and responds with wonder and adoration. Makes much of, who? The one who gave the blessing. A cat turns it and makes much of self. David responds like a dog, not like a cat, and so must we. We should very much emphasize, and we can't tell that story enough in enough detail from all the different angles, forward and backwards, up and down. We can't, we can't overtell the story of God's amazing, wonderful love and sheltering and care and concern for us, his blessing, his grace. But like David then, what we have to do with that is we should look at it and be marvelously undone by it. Look at all that is true of me. Look at all that I have. Look at all that's come to me. You must be God. You must be amazing and awesome and wonderful. You, not me. That's what God wants to be known by. The glory of his grace. Not just by his omnipotence. His omnipotence for glorious grace. Not just by his wisdom, but his wisdom that worked out glorious saving grace, etc., etc., etc. He wants to be known 
as that kind of a God. He wants that known about himself, the glory of his grace. I act in generous grace towards those who trust me. I do for you. Is that not at the heart of the story? David wants to build him a house, and God says, whoa, 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 who built whose house? I want to be known as the one who builds your house. I want to be known as the God of grace. He wants us known because it's what's honoring and glorifying him. It's what's so unique that he would be a God who is so transcendent and yet stoops down to do for his people not to demand from them. He needs nothing. He wants to show himself as the doer, the giver, the generous one, the one of grace. It's what's honoring to him, and it's what's good for us. It's how we're fixed. It's how we are healed. Get this. This is more important, I think. The first one is perhaps theologically more important. The second piece is personally more important. Theologically, to honor him and put him in the right place is right, but it's also how we're fixed, how we're healed. The fall into sin has turned us all into cats. If you're a cat lover, great. I'm not against cats, per se. <laughs> but it's turned us all in on ourselves. That's what the fall did. It made us the center of our worlds the center of our concerns has become me. The focus of my attention is me. The service, the locus of all my service is for me and my needs. The worship of me is directed towards the God of me. That's what the fall did to me and to you and to all of us. It turned us in on ourselves and we see everything is related to me and for the exaltation of one. But we're not made for that and we can't stand under that. There's a whole lot of burden and a whole lot of struggle in building up me and in trying to tame this great big world by myself for my own ends. I can't handle the world. You can't either. There's way too much out there. We are too small. The world is too challenging. But we try and we try and we try and we put on a smile. We try to project that we have it all together. We're not made for that. We collapse under it. And you see it in all of our anxieties and all of our fears when the thing that I'm looking at seems to not be working. Anxiety and fear, doubt and worry creeps in. Or we see it in our prides and our loves when the thing that I'm looking at is seeming to have it all together. Then I'm proud and I love me. Either way, it's still about me. Never at rest and never satisfied. We're made for more. We're made to sit in awe before God, worshiping him, showered by his grace. And God kindly said, I'm going to be about that. I'm going to make me the center of your world. For me, and for you, and for you. Sort of looking at and marveling is how people get fixed, how we get restored to what we should be. We look away from ourselves and to the great and gracious God, and as Paul taught us then, we are transformed, we are renewed, we're made whole again as we behold his glory The glory that is about a far, 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 far more than I deserve. Amazing grace. So, come and sit before the Lord for your own good.
It, it is an amazing act of casualness that he has made possible for you in Jesus. He opened up the door to his throne room and actually became your friend. He made you his friend. He made you actually a child of his. He adopted you into his family and he invites you to come sit on the carpet in the living room and he gets it on the carpet with you. God! Lying and rolling around the carpet with you. Come on over. Sit down. Sit before him in his presence, humbled. And this is going to take a quiet minute or 10 or 20 or 30. Make the time for it. And as you open your Bible, as you sit with him, Bible open and you read it, ask yourself in each passage, what does this tell me about God? That he is almighty, that he exists in eternity past alone, yes. That he was content in eternity past at rest because he was never alone. He's triune, he's perfectly, beautifully, gloriously full. And that he made all that is and made it very good. That one has done for you. That that one would do for me. Who am I? What more can I say to you? That's the overwhelmed, awestruck posture of David in this passage. It's the overwhelmed, awestruck posture of one whose eyes have seen the glorious grace of God and at the moment is truly, fully poor in spirit. Humbled. I got nothing. I got nothing. I mean, I walk up there in front of other people and I, you know, I put on my tie or my business suit or whatever and I... And I feel like I've got something. I go out in the court and I've got something, but I sit here in front of you and I realize, who am I? What more can I say? Oh, Lord God, you are great. And I worship you in joyful rest before you. That is not, this is, this is not the only way to worship, but it is, it is different than the exuberant celebration of of lots of noise and lots of, lots of clapping and lots of moving, and, right? It's different. That's fine, too. We need, we need that, but we also need room for this, that is the worship that is... <sighs> we need that. David shows it to us here. The greatness of God has come home to him in this passage. Has the greatness of God come home to you? Are you poor in spirit? This God is great and we are not. We are at best flowers quickly fading, just gone. And your fallenness, your sinful depravity is far deeper and far more profound than you realize. But he has revealed to you, he has told you, he has spoken of something that he did and is doing for you that tells you about him. You open up and you read it and you look for him in it. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's the truth. 
He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before you'd done anything. Before anything was true of you, before you existed, he knew you and made you his own and sent Christ after you, for you, to be rejected for you in your place that you might be forgiven. You could be saved to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, we usually think of that story as being the, the story of redemption. It's the story of how I got saved. He knew me. He sent Christ for me. He saved me. And it is the story of you, of us. But Paul reminds us in Ephesians, it's all to the praise of his glorious grace. It's actually about him. He redeemed you to make a name for himself. This, sometimes I push this and it feels like, man, that's, that's insulting almost. No, it's not. It's proper ordering. He's God. He saved you to make a name for himself. So we need to appropriately tell ourselves to get off center stage and to put God there. And that's not bad. We're, we're actually made for that. It doesn't throw us away. It just puts us in the proper spot. Second, him first. We're made for that. We're made to worship one who is worthy. We're made to depend upon one who is strong. We're made to lean into one who is kind and gracious. We're made to trust one who is loving. It's good and right to second ourselves. So continue to think about the story of God's redemption, the story of God's grace as being a story about God. Think about that and think about it slowly. We often don't think about it slowly enough. We breeze through this and want to find something to do. Before you do, be. Sit before the Lord. <sighs> wow, who are you that you would be like that for me? You, oh Lord, God, are great. If we thought about that enough, all of our striving and all of our contending would seem as silly as it really is. And his greatness and his dependability would rise up and be as clear as it actually is. And our need for him would be clear. And maybe then in that spot we would open our mouths and ask him, do still more, Lord which leads us to the second point. Secondly then, now, Lord, please do what you have promised. 
Now, Lord, please do what you have promised. David's tone of prayer, his, his thankful wonder, that doesn't change in this passage, but at verse 25, the content changes. As we've noted, it changes from adoration, thanksgiving, to petition. He makes a request here now. He's still very humble. He still is calling him Lord God. He still refers to himself in the third person. He talks about your servant and his house. But he's clearly now going to ask him to bless. He even says that explicitly in verse 29. May it please you to bless the house of your servant. He's asking God for more blessing. Why does he ask him for more blessing? Well, verse 25 tells us, Now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken. Make my house great, like you said. He actually says that repeatedly all through the passage. He's humble, but he's direct and bold as he pins God down on, that's what you said. Humble, but direct and bold. You made this revelation known because you've revealed your plan to me, telling me that you'd build your house. Therefore, that's why I found courage to pray like I'm praying right now. That's what David says. How would I be so bold? How would I be so direct about this? But because your words are true and you said it. You promised this good thing, so do it, please. That's the connection here between the, the promises of God and bold prayer. Now, one thing we should learn from this passage in a, in a general sense is that we can boldly ask God for the things that he said he's going to do, the things he's spoken about. So as we open the Bible and we look for, for who, is, who is God here, what is this telling me about God, we also should be looking for what does this say about God's character and his, his actions, his intentions, his plans, the things he always opposes, the things he always embraces. What does it tell me that, that God wants? Well, then I can pray that in Jesus' name. That's what that phrase means. It's not that you tack on the words in Jesus' name at the end and then like that's how you seal it. To pray in Jesus' name means I pray what God wants and then God does it because God said he would do it. So we should be looking through the scriptures for God's promises where he's showing us what he wants to do where he wants us to go in our thinking and in our hoping and our acting and our giving and in our praying. So there's a general point there that we can take from this. We should pray in line with the promises. And we can pray boldly and then act boldly in line with God's promises. But specifically, to stay more, more in this passage, we should see here that this is a call to prayer to pray like what David is praying as he marvels at this particular grace of God. The grace to make a kingdom, to build it and secure it. O oh Lord, please do what you have promised, that is, establish the throne of your servant David. Build him a house. In him reign over all your people. And in so doing, hallow your name forever. This is verse 26. Your name may be magnified forever. We can pray that. Or take the words of Psalm 2. Grab hold of the son of David, your son, Father. 
and give the nations to him. Give him a people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Everywhere. You said you would. Now do it, please. Take the son of David. Take him and identify him publicly in the eyes of the hearts of people everywhere. Point out to them, like you did in the past, in history, point out to each individual person, this one is the son. This is a message that's for all of mankind. Would you carry that message, Lord, to all of mankind, to individual people? Will you say, this is the son. This is the one in whom there is hope. And apart from him, there isn't. Father, do that. We can and should pray like that. Father, will you lift up Jesus in the eyes of the hearts of people everywhere? Will you lift up his accomplishment on the cross? Will you lift up the fact of the empty tomb? Will you show him now to people's eyes, seated in heaven and reigning? And will you draw them to you, maybe for the first time or maybe again? May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how he taught us to pray. And we can pray that boldly and confidently. His kingdom will come. He said so. But in the providence of God, in the wisdom of God, one of the ways it comes is as we pray. Because he wants to have us included in it. I don't know all of why. But he does. He wants us included in the work of bringing in the kingdom. And so he shows us this modeled prayer, shows us his promises, gives us the direction and tells us to pray. Pray like this. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. How would your name be hallowed? By bringing your kingdom here. Making your will be done. And particularly, making yourself the gracious one known as the gracious one. And so then, Lord, show that by meeting all of our needs. That's the Lord's prayer. Pray. Surely that's instruction for mankind, and surely it points out, anybody who's reading this or hearing this, surely there would be a note in that that I need to get with Jesus because that's the only game in town. But more than that, this is about us, and it's, it's a lesson for us about what we should pray and how we should pray and that we should pray. We often come to a passage, and what we want from it is some sort of an application, meaning, what do I do? And the answer is, the first thing you do is you sit in front of God and let your mouth hang open and wonder. And the second thing you do is you pray and ask God to do. And then the third thing you do is you go talk to other people about this. Thirdly. But the first two things David does is he just goes and sits in wonder and then he prays. So the question in front of us here is, I think from this passage, from this half of the passage, Christian, 
Do you want the kingdom of God or not? You're a Christian. If you're a Christian, then the answer to that is, in some sense, yes, of course, of course. Yeah, okay. So maybe the second question is actually, how much? Have you sat in front of this God enough, consistently enough, to beyond intellectually, but to actually experientially know that's life? And this ain't Do you want the son of David to reign? His name to be hallowed, his kingdom to come. Do you see the beauty of that kingdom? And do you see the hopelessness and the triviality and the insanity and the ruthlessness and the temporal instability and shortness of all of these earthly kingdoms? Do you want the kingdom of God? You hunger and thirst for righteousness in you and in your parents and in your kids and in your spouse and in your friends and in your church and in your neighborhood. Do you want the kingdom of God? Well, we can't bring it. Only the king can. I've got nothing in my hands. Who am I? But the king can bring it. Ask him. We must pray because he alone is great. He alone can make his kingdom come. He alone can make his name to actually be hallowed, not just in word, but actually in heart. So we ask him, we pray, Lord, bring your kingdom. Lord, you said that you would. You said that you would lift up the son and you would put him on a throne and you would cause him to reign over all the nations. Do that which you said you would do. Please. Pray. Pray for that kingdom to come to yourself and to your family and to the church and to the nations. Lord, do what you have promised. Make a name great for yourself by claiming and conforming a people to you for you everywhere to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, do that, please. I don't want to just preach about that. I want to pray about that. Would you please do that? Would you bring your kingdom? In a lot of places, we need to pray that. Would you bring your kingdom for the first time? Would you save people? Would you bring conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment? And would you shine a light on Jesus and say, this is the son in whom there is the only hope you have, but a good hope, a full hope, a real gracious hope. Would you bring the kingdom for the first time to people and to places? Would you bring conviction to our nation? Would you bring revival? We need you to do that. We can't. We repent of all the ways the church has tried to cook up revival over the last decades. It's all false. Would you please pour out your spirit and bring revival? We can't. You can But if in the bringing of your kingdom you choose to not make it great, would you continue to make it small?
These are currently days of small works. Do those works. Continue to bring your kingdom to individuals, but also bring your kingdom to those of us who know you, but wander or weak, struggle. Have more of the world in us, more of those kingdoms than we should. Who love the things that sparkle. Who love the earth too much. We're trapped in some ways, Lord. We're deceived in some ways. Will you bring your kingdom to your people? Will you cause the reign of Jesus to run? Free us, please. Us corporately, us individually, will you, will you redeem us from the, the backsliding or from the wanderings? And those of us who currently are running with you strong, Lord, would you, will you encourage us into boldness and into to confident action, prayerful, confident action? Will you walk with us and sustain us and keep us? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us all of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one who is after us. Deliver us from him, Lord. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.